it's one of those things where I've been away for two weeks. The calendar says I've been gone about two weeks. And it really feels like I've been gone like a month, month and a half. I was just looking at a photo of myself from like three, four weeks ago. And, you know, I have just horrendously aged. Stress is brutal. So we're back. I'm not sure I'm talking into the right side of the microphone. Who knows? All my stuff feels foreign again. I'm hating. I just I just hate that. I hate this idea that I, I go, I come and go and my things pop up and I, I get distracted and I can't really build a structure and I can't really grow anything. It's it's real irritating. So I apologize for my most recent absences. It's really delightful to be back. I'm super excited to be back. This is um, this is going to be a really good chat. There's some excellent questions tonight, and I don't know if they're spicy or not. I could make a few spicy for you upon request, I suppose. But I, I think this is going to be a really informative chat. Uh, I've got three pints of tea, well, two pints of tea and one that is, I guess, mostly melted ice water with a little tea in it somewhere. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of pumped to do this. This one should be real good. I've been looking forward to this all day. I think, I think we need to get started. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. So here we are again, doing what we do. I, I just wanted to I just wanted to make a note because this came up uh, somewhere along the way. Hi everybody, thank you for being here. It's delightful to have you. Thanks for coming. Uh, this did this did come up, and I do want to say something about it. Everything I do is supported by people, whether that's Patreon subscriptions, whether that's uh, channel subscriptions, whether that's uh, clients, everything, everything is person supported. There's, there's no like major business thing here. I get offers like every other streamer does to promote this game with this thing and this mobile app and this doodad. And none of, I, I don't do any of them. Uh, I have no interest in promoting a game to people who don't come to me to talk about gaming. Uh, at best, what I'm waiting for, what I would love uh, I'd, I'd love to promote like steno pads and pens and different writing stuff. Even writing software, potentially, I guess, wouldn't be too bad. Although I did spend the last chat pretty much dragging them across the hot coals. But, you know, give me a writer thing and, and maybe we'll talk. But I need you to know 
that um, this is all person supported. And if you want to support this, if you want this, if you want more questions, if you want more videos, if you want more chats, if you want more discussions, if you want more products and more everything to help you write whatever the hell it is you're writing, uh, the very best thing you can do right now is go over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. And man, $2 a month. It, it makes all the difference and you will be amazed at the number of things you get two bucks a month. It's all I'm asking. I want to thank each and every single person for being here. Hi, I'm John. Uh, if you don't know who the hell I am, I'm the guy who's going to help you write better. Uh, I've been doing this now for more than half my life, almost 25 years. Um, I'm still trying to narrow down like the exact date so we can like, you know, celebrate and stuff. How do I feel about campfire and world anvil? Um, I, I don't know. I'm vague campfire. No, I'm thinking about something else. World anvil. I've, I've never heard of. Uh, I would be happy to get information and come back to you with an opinion, but I have just based on the name, the names sound cool, but I don't know what they are in terms of product. Uh, drop me some details at some point and I will go get into it. So I'm making a question in the chat sometime and we'll get there. But for now, I do want to do the regular opening because I do remember that it has not been so long that I am devoid of openings. Ladies and gentlemen, Guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, planners, plotters, dreamers, thinkers, hopefuls, stressfuls, children, parents, friends, family, hard workers, anybody who's ever had to scrub a floor, anybody who's ever had to peel up carpet, anyone who's ever struggled with self-doubt, anybody who's felt paralyzed or stuck or trapped or worried, anybody who's ever suffered and hurt in order to accomplish something, everybody who's ever wondered if they're ever going to start or if they're ever going to finish, anybody who's ever wondered if anybody is out there listening or caring or thinking or feeling, anybody who's going through uh, truly hard times, anybody who's gone through hard times and come out the other side, anybody who's ever enjoyed like a really good baked potato, anybody who's ever appreciated the value of like nicely trimmed toenails after a really long day, the, the great shower enthusiasts, shaving club people, and most importantly, the comrades. Uh, it is so... So nice. There are tears in my eyes. It's one of the reasons why there's no camera tonight, because I'm just feeling like overwhelmed and grateful to be back here. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I see, oh shit, I see new people here or people who have, I, I know who have not normally attended a chat. So it is wonderful to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to promise to do my absolute best to be some combination of entertaining and informational and and kind and clear and good because your time is valuable and I respect you. One, I, I want you to feel like it matters and I want you to learn something from this and I, I want you to do good things in the world. So comrades, brothers and sisters, friends of the revolution, let's let's get started. This is the writer's chat for th uh, March. I was going to say 315 for March the 15th. Uh, Holy shit, March the 15th. It feels like I last time I talked to you, it was like a different century. I, my head is spinning. It's crazy. But here we are all the same. And if you don't know what this is, if this is the first time you're hearing this and checking this out, hi, wow, you're in for a treat, aren't you? Um, I'm going to answer questions from all corners and comers of social media, all different kinds of things and all different kinds of stuff. 
I'm going to answer questions about writing and publishing and editing and marketing and anything else those people in chat could possibly think of. Hi, chat. That's chat, by the way, for both Twitch, twitch.tv slash John helps you write better, and YouTube, youtube.com slash John Adamus. That's A D A M U S. If you've ever wondered how to spell my last name, and yes, I'm answering questions on the Ides of March. No, I did not have a Caesar salad for dinner. But uh, it is, in fact, the Ides of March. So let's stab a really, like, aggressive militaristic politician tonight, shall we? Let's really, like, get our togas bloody and then tell everybody that, you know, somebody's an honorable man. Shall we move on? Shall we do this? Are we ready to go? Let's go. Question number one. Name three more reasons my query got rejected. Okay, to do that first, we're going to name the three big reasons why your query got rejected. And this is in no particular order of priority. These are just the, the way they're coming in off the top of my head. Item number one, uh, your query sucks. Your query sucks on toast. Your query is not engaging. Your query does not hold attention, grab attention, create interest. It's just kind of flat and dull like old soda or, or bad tires. It's just kind of sitting there. That's item number one. Item number two. Your query, although well-constructed, technically in the sense that there are words and paragraphs and things, contains some number of truly shocking red flags or problems that cause your query to be outright just flagged and rejected for any number of reasons, whether that's content, whether that's structure, whether that's desperation. There's something in the query, although it is technically correct, there is something within it, the organization of words and ideas, that make it rejectable. And three, you have sent your query for one thing to somebody who does not read that thing. Like you've sent your science fiction query to a romance person and they don't read science fiction and they're not about to start just for you. Those are your big three reasons. Let's cover three more reasons. How about this one? This is a pretty common fourth one. Um, your book isn't very bookish. It's more of a disconnected series of scenes. You can query it, you can make it sound exciting, but upon presentation of the manuscript, the manuscript fails to live up to the promise of the query because it's too disjointed, it's too disconnected, it's too rambling, there's too many disparate characters and disparate problems, it, it's just a mess, and the amount of work it would take to repair that mess and turn it into the book the query says it could be is disproportionate to the interest of the people who are going to be doing that work. It's too much work to fix it, so they're not going to fix it. That's problem number you know four on our list. Problem number five. This happens a lot more than you think. Let's suppose there's a very popular book series or a very popular single book. People see that book, whatever it is, whatever genre it is, it's on the bestseller list, it's winning awards, whatever that might be, it's popular, okay? Now, other human beings see this and go, ah, this book, I see that it is popular, I see it is winning awards, whatever's in it must be a thing that's good, and if I do something similar to this good thing, I too will also have good things happen for me. So what happens, uh, item number five on our six-item query rejection list, your book is too similar, like barely filed the serial numbers off similar to existing material. Recall not a few years ago how there was a big, giant fantasy series about people who wanted to sit in a pointy metal chair. And then, 
as that stuff went took off, oh my God, everyone had big giant fantasy novels about everyone trying to rule a, a fractured kingdom with a lot of characters and a lot of points of view. Or, you know, the ever popular, oh my God, there's a magical school and a prophesied child. Whether that's a teenager or a little boy or a little girl or a little non-binary student or a single adult who's found their way into a fantasy world, whatever it might be. There's a magical school and it's full of, I swear to you, not entirely problematic things. I promise double secret super promise, but here we are. We're all telling magical school stories or, Oh, I'm a, I'm a down on his luck detective in a supernatural magic world. And now all of a sudden there's a million supernatural detectives all solving crimes. You haven't even bothered to try and do your own thing. You're still playing with somebody else's toys in your own sandbox. No wonder everybody's upset. you got to do your own thing. That's item number five. Item number six. Despite your best query efforts, despite the best writing of your life, your query and your manuscript just aren't interesting. You've written a good story. It's just not the right time to put it out. What do I mean? How, how do we possibly tell that? How is that not one of the most subjective things ever? What do you mean it's just not the right time? Okay, let's use a non-book example. Let's talk TV series. So I just read this not 20 minutes before sitting down to turn this microphone on. Uh, there was a, a, not a reboot, but a continuation of Willow, the Ron Howard movie. Uh, a continuation of Willow on Disney+. Plus. I didn't see it. I didn't like Willow to begin with, aside from Val Kilmer's part. And I remember it kind of freaked me out because there's like a goat or something in it, and it was weird. But uh, they, they did a couple episodes of like a new, like a, a follow-up kind of a Willow thing. It wasn't a direct sequel or anything. But uh, they canceled it. There will be no second season of Willow. Why? Because not enough people watched the first season of Willow. There wasn't enough interest. If... Willow comes back again and they do an offshoot or a Christmas special or a, a, a Willow's Magical Adventure single thing. It's not the right time. You can't control that. Most of these things for your query rejection are out of your control. It's how your query and how your manuscript come to the reader. What mood they're in. How many things like it have they read today? Did you, you know, there are some things under your control. Did you send it to the right person? Is your query like query shaped? It, did you, did you write 12 pages and beg and beg and beg in your query or did you write a query letter? There are some things under your control, but there's also some things that are just plain old not, not at all under your control, not going to be under your control. And that's, that's the roll the dice and take your chances of traditional publishing that doesn't necessarily make it automatically super worse than self-publishing because that has its own issues, pitfalls, red flags, and roll the dice chances. But they're, they're, they're just two separate things where risk is involved because anytime you bring in other people to accomplish anything, you, you're running the risk of rejection or silence or judgment. And you have to know those things going in. If, if those are reasons to stop you from doing a thing, save yourself the trouble and stop now. But... If you're committed to this and you really want to do this, then you can't let the possibility of judgment, rejection, silence, 
stupid questions, too many questions, long interminable waiting where you hurry up and then wait a while. You can't let any of that stop you. You just can't. So don't. But those are three reasons why your query got rejected. Do with it as you will, and we'll go on to the next question. Question number two. Are there tropes that render a fantasy novel traditionally unpublishable? Yes, there are actually quite a few. However, some of these are really, really obvious ones. Like, don't a fantasy novel really shouldn't in like sexually endanger children? You know, obvious stuff. Don't don't like don't support that. That's not great. Because remember, your audience for fantasy is really kind of broad and diverse. And while I suppose, yes, the smart-ass argument is, you know, sexual monsters are people too. They deserve to have books. That doesn't mean they should have your book. So, yes, that is a trope that can absolutely uh, get you flagged as unpublishable. Similarly, really any kind of excessive sexual violence that tries to get framed as a way of, you know, putting forth the hero's nobility or prowess or strength. Oh, look how tough our barbarian is as they commit sexual assault. Yay! It's not really a yay. That's bad. That's terrible. Don't do that. But that'll also get get you flagged. And it obviously, anything overtly incredibly racist, sexist, phobic, um, anything socially toxic... Really, you can consider that whole class of trope to be the sort of thing uh, where if you talked about this in a group of people, would you get more than a little pushback? If you describing the story element would generate that, then yes, that's the kind of trope that'll flag your book as unpublishable. But there are a few others that aren't so obvious that'll render your fantasy novel unpublishable, not because they are sexually graphic or violent or or um, harmful and dangerous to communities, but stuff within fantasy will render you unpublishable. Like, for instance, randomly murdering off your female population. Fridging will more and more flag you as unpublishable because it's a dull, stupid, uninspired, small-minded idea. You don't have to do it. There's no reason to do it. Yes, you want to demonstrate your, your bad guy's a bad guy? Great. Why kill the girlfriend? There's no reason to. Kill somebody. Go go. just kill random people. Kill, kill all those people over there across the street, super bad guy. Why, why, aren't, why is that less valuable than, ah, oh, the girlfriend, the love interest? Why? Don't do that. Don't fridge. You don't have to bump off your female character, you know, readership, your character population just to generate some kind of interest for your readership. That suggests a very narrow and sexist view in terms of what your reader responds to. Following that up, but not entirely related to the murder of characters, try not to, you know, absolutely patronize your readership like the old standards of you know, pat your insert character type on the head. Oh, don't worry your pretty little head now. We're going to go, you know, do a thing and let the hero folk talk. Anything that sort of establishes or goes back to or calls back to that old-fashioned status quo of generally white dudes, generally straight white dudes sort of dictating how the world should work, that's the stuff that's going to flag you as more and more unpublishable. 
at least in terms of trope. There are non-trope things that'll flag you as unpublishable, like in an, an inability to maintain point of view, uh, rampant construction problems so that the reader has a hard time following the manuscript. But by and large, if we're just talking tropes, you're looking at anything that is going to be framed as or developed as being uh, harmful to either reader or character population in a way that sets up sort of a an unhelpful, less kind, old-fashioned, shitty status quo. But no, you're not going to be flagged as unpublishable if you have, you know, like, um, I don't know, a diverse council of elders or, oh my God, we have, I don't know, magic or steam or something in your fantasy novel. That stuff's not going to flag you as unpublishable. It's going to have to do with the social politicking and social dynamics and, and culture or cultural uh, development of the story stuff more so than anything else. That's what's going to flag unpublishable lately. Great question. Love that question. Nice detail. Off we go to the third one while I put a mouthful of tea in my face because this one's kind of long. But I do love it. Does my romance novel need a human antagonist? Is it enough to have internal and external obstacles, meaning for the characters? Or do I need someone to show up and twirl a mustache? Okay. Need is the tricky word here because some subsets of romance novels do need a human antagonist. Those stories where um, generally those things in family romance, that's not creepy. That's like uh, my family opposes my relationship choice. That's not like I'm in love with my family member. That's just my dad's a pain in the ass and won't let me hang out with Patrick Swayze, that kind of thing. Or the one where my mom thinks that's the wrong person for me. Or any kind of uh, story where your family is positioned as the opposition to your relationship. That's where you're going to benefit best from a human antagonist. There are other ones as well where you have what's called uh, external social pressure. Like uh, one person is, is, you know, like an escaped convict. That was a very popular one in the 90s. Like they're on the lam and, and they're being hunted by the law because all cops are bastards. And uh, the law is personified by like a sheriff or a marshal or a law enforcement pig of some way, shape, or form. So they're, they're personified. They're made to be a human antagonist. But beyond that, no. If you have internal and external obstacles specific to each character, here's why I, character A in the romance, cannot connect to this character B and establish this relationship, develop and grow, be it internal, I'm having self-doubt, or feelings, or mood, or anxieties, or whatevers, or external obstacles. Oh my God, I don't have enough money. I can't save the malt shop. As long as characters have some kind of obstacle that is not necessarily human, but present enough in their life so as to create some kind of tension, and not just tension one time and then we forget about it, but like consistent story tension, then yeah, you, you don't need that human antagonist. It's useful in some subsets, in some story constructions, and that's going to be specific to the story. But by and large, as long as you've got your internal and your external obstacles set up, and it's not that you need to give everybody internal and external obstacles. This is not a teen late night soap on uh, the WB, which I guess is now the CW, which I guess is now no longer the CW. But it's not, I'm going to date myself. It's not like Melrose, One Tree Hill, the OC, 
uh, Party of Five. Um, what was that other one? Vampire Diaries. Uh, all those teeny ones that that kind of came after 90210, though 90210 was also a thing because the human antagonists there were sometimes were the parents or random guest stars who came in for sweeps week. But as long as you have internal and external obstacles present for some percentage of the characters, you'll be okay. The twirling of the mustache is actually a bit too far. Um, it's helpful to have your human antagonist be an antagonistic force. Ah, I'm a bad person. I'm stopping this because I'm Jerry Orbach and I don't want you to dance with Patrick Swayze or I'm John Lithgow and I don't want you to dance. What is it with people and not dancing? But, um, yeah, they don't need to come in and be like extra, extra villainy. Ah, I'm a villain. Here's my mustache. I'm twirling it. Like that's, that's too far. You don't have to go that far. Set up your obstacles. And there'll be more than enough, and they'll do more, especially the internal ones. You will get far more mileage out of a character completely paralyzed by doubt than you ever could by giving them an obstacle of like a bully or a parent who just doesn't get it. Oh, yeah, internal obstacles all day when it comes to character growth, says the guy who's badly crippled by anxiety and absolutely just terrified of everything except his own shadow lately. Yeah, great question. But now, are there any questions from chat? Hello, late coming people. I see you. It's nice to have you. Thank you for being here. I hope you're doing well. It's nice to be back. Questions about anything. I was recording for Patreon today and the power went out like midway. I was making a brilliant point in the middle of the recording and the power went out for like 25 minutes, just long enough for me to forget my stupid point. So now I have to pick it back up tomorrow and kind of be like, where did I leave off? It sucks. It's good. There's going to be like a little hitch in my recording because I, I wasn't, I was rambling. So I'll start back. I'm glad to be back, Sam. Thanks for being here. Uh, does the answer I gave to question three apply to romance subplots as well? Yes. Um, obviously, because it's a subplot, you're going to get, you know, you're going to have either fewer obstacles or smaller obstacles by scale. Like it's a subplot, so they're not going to get as much attention as the main plot. But yeah, you don't need a human antagonist as a subplot. You can, but you don't always have to have it. It's not like we have to have the people in the relationship. Those are musts in romance. We do not have to have the human antagonist. You can get away with the obstacles. It's totally fine. Tonight's tea, by the way, is French. It's not bad. It's real fruity. Like, it's real light. I had to, like, steep this thing like crazy to get it really, like, because I, I like stronger, darker tea, and this stuff's pretty, like, uh, light ginger ale color. It's not bad. If I drink enough of it fast enough, everybody will be happy. But it's not bad. I waited all day yesterday for the stream, only realized I was a day early and then wound up late. It's, it's really fine. I should point out that if, um, as long as my schedule permits, if I get asked in the morning, like if you come find me on, say, the Discord, which you have access to from the Patreon, uh, if, if you come ask me in the morning, hey, I could use a stream on topic, whatever it is, fill in the blank, and you give me like 10 hours, I could 
probably throw something together. It won't have as many graphics necessarily. For more graphics, I need a day. But if, if you ever were like, John, I need a stream about how to market science fiction books. Or, oh, man, I would love for you to talk for more than four minutes about uh, how the hell I'm supposed to use social media now. Sure. Just ask. I, I've got all this knowledge. I need a place to put it. I want to fill up my YouTube channel. So, yeah, ask whenever, anytime. Write me an email. Send me a note. Find me on Discord. Tweet me. Whatever. But, yeah, it's nice to have you here as I drink my really mediocre tea. So, yeah, any other questions, issues, etc. else we shall plow on. Yes, it's more or less an on-demand stream thing. I can't do it right that minute because um, stuff like if you catch me in the middle of the day, chances are I have people I'm working with or something. But uh, yeah, overall we can, we can accommodate as best we can. If I got enough lead time, I need a couple hours. It can't be like, ask me at six 45 to do a seven o'clock stream and expect it to be like hella organized. Otherwise you're just going to end up with staring at like one static screen. But if you want some dynamism, you want some good old fashioned educational shit, um, yeah, fire away. Just give me some lead time. Questions? Else we will march on. The questions get good now. Well, they were good before. There's some good ones packed in here. We're coming. Get ready. On we go. Question. Oh, that tea is... It's like drinking a bouquet. Question number four. What is a writer's guild and what do they do? All right. The shortest, easiest way to explain this is when you see the word guild, I want you to think union because they're functionally the same thing. Now, history nerds, I know they're not the same thing, but we're not having a history discussion right now. We can do that later. You can do that in the comments down below for YouTube. But the Writers Guild is essentially a collection of writers, any Writers Guild, whether it's the Romance Writers Guild, the Mystery Writers Guild, uh, the Catholic Writers Guild came up on Discord the other day. Um, the Writers Guild East, the Writers Guild of America, Writers Guild of Canada, Writers Guild of Oceanic Peoples, whatever. They're a collection of writers who have organized in order to generally main, uh, sort of codify and mainstream how they want to get paid, how much they get paid, when they get paid, and to collectively bargain when possible in order to interact with publishers or other creators. They're a union. Uh, some have benefits, some have great benefits, like the Writers Guild. Um, some have no benefits in terms of like medical in the U.S. kind of benefits, but some have a lot of benefits like access to more materials, large libraries, lots of on-demand trainings and things. Uh, and it really sort of depends on the particular guild in question. Uh, there are almost always going to be dues of some kind, whether that's... Uh, like a yearly thing or a monthly thing or every four months or six months or whatever. There's always some kind of pay in to receive the benefit from the guild. Guilds are awesome. Love guilds, love unions, big fan. Because groups are always better than singles. But at the same time, uh, there can be requirements for entry that can, for some people, be a disincentive, be difficult to get in. SIFWA, uh, SFWA can be difficult to get in on a professional level because of the number of credentials and credits you need. Whereas something like uh, 
the North Baptist Christian Writers Guild requires you to be a Baptist and just say you're a Baptist. Like you just, you just say it. And I think there's like a form, but there's no complicated process or series of hoops beyond that. Some do, some don't. This is why we Google things so you can find the requirements, find the information and sign up, pay for and access accordingly. Super useful stuff. Great stuff. Shall we go on? I was told I'm a nervous writer. That should be in quotes. I'm a nervous writer. Are there other types of writers? And does knowing my writer type help or hurt me and my book? Okay. We're not using nervous as an adjective like John's nervous right now. We're using nervous as a, as a writer type. Writer types are a slightly old-fashioned, and I say old-fashioned meaning they're like 12. When did we really get fall out of vogue here? 8 to 12 years ago? Writer typing was a way of sort of organizing and helping describe writers with a certain collection of problems. Nervous writers, desperate writers, anxious writers, uh, bully writers, second draft writers. These are all types of writer. There's, um, there are, I, I think there's 30. There's at least two dozen that I can think of off the top of my head, but not easily list without sitting down with a piece of paper and a stronger than this cup of tea. There are many types of writer and really you're labeled by this type. You're identified with this late, this type because of how you write or how you produce or what kind of problems your writing presents. This is not necessarily an indicator of unpublishability. Just because you're a nervous writer doesn't mean you're never going to be published or you'll never sell a book. It just means that as a nervous writer, you tend to write in a way that suggests a level of anxiety or uncertainty with your language. Likewise, nervous writers tend to overuse punctuation, particularly commas and semicolons, but mostly commas, and they tend to bulk out, excuse me, bulk out their paragraphs with descriptions in a way to suggest that, you know, if I just keep mentioning things, one of these things you'll think is cool, right? Right? Elbow, elbow. That's a nervous writer. A bully writer is somebody who's not really flexible in their language. It's not necessarily like bully in terms of like, I'll take your lunch money kind of a thing, but bully in terms of the inflexibility and their sort of like charging head down forward momentum as a writer. This is how things are. There's a whole lot of tell, not a lot of show, and I'm not willing to make a lot of changes. Uh, they're actually really difficult to work with when they're like that. Um, but I'm just going to take it what it is. And there's also, at least with bully, bully writer type also used to be called arrogant or know-it-all writer type because they'd come to somebody like me and ask for advice on what to do. And I would give that advice or, so, or another coach would give that advice and they'd go, uh-huh, and then not do it. So yes, there are many other types of writers. Does knowing my writer type help or hurt me and my book? Well, um, help or hurt there is pretty flexible because if knowing that you're a nervous writer and that you say over rely on punctuation, it can help you because it'll say, Hey, Maybe I should lean a little less on these M dashes, but at the same time, it can be a pain in the ass to strip the M dash habit out of your muscle memory. So I guess that's a way it could hurt you. But again, as I said before, your writer type does not exclude you from publishability. It's just, hey, this is how I write. I mentioned a second draft writer. Second draft writing and second draft writers are people whose first drafts are buckets of extra hot garbage. They're just a nightmare soup. 
And then all of a sudden, when the second draft rolls around, holy shit, it's like a different book. The structure is there, the characters are there, the organization is there, and the amount of trimming that needs to happen to take it from second draft to third draft is minor compared to the amount of work that went into making the first draft a second draft. They just do better on a second draft. Does that help or hurt? No. And if anything, it's a it's a help to them that they, you know, dragged ass and bashed their head against the wall to get that first draft done, but their second draft really stands out and shines. So you're a nervous writer. It's going to be okay. Not the end of the world. Just do your best. And overall, a book in its published state, a book in its end state, you generally, if your editing was solid, you can't necessarily easily tell a writer's type. Read enough of that author and you can, but from from just first draft, like the first blush cold look at like, I've never read this person before. No, you can't really tell. It's going to be okay. It's just a way of helping identify the sort of problems you can work on and identify the possible pitfalls you'll run into. For instance, let's just, we'll give one more and then we'll move along. So in, um, oh, what are called overly physical writers, those are writers who love to populate the page with very tactile descriptions. You see this in romance, but you also see it in like action stories where everybody's grabbing something and everything has a feel adjective. This is rough, this is coarse, this is soft, this is this, this is that. It's very tactile. A lot of that writing style does not lend itself to strong internals. Like you don't really, somebody who's deep into telling you like the texture of everything is not really going to stop and tell you what, you know, character Kevin is thinking on page 45. So you know that you have to stop and sit down and really make a concerted effort to make sure you get into that character's head for more than one instance and more than one sentence on more than one page to help move the story along. So it can be helpful. I think it's still a useful thing. It fell out of favor because they just really stopped teaching it, which is fine. I get it. They moved on to other things. Everybody got way deep into caring about theme, but not really explaining what to do with it. But they did care about it. They still do. But there's, you know, the failings of the current writer prep system should probably be a stream all unto itself. I love your question. Thanks for asking. Question number six. How can you tell when a piece is good enough for submission if good is so subjective? All right. I'm going to give away a big publishing secret now. Are you ready? Come here. Come closer. Come come extra closer to your speakers. I promise I'm not going to scream. This is not a trick. Here's a big secret. You kind of can't, and everybody's just kind of making it up as they go along. I know that's a shocking revelation but good is incredibly subjective what's good and i liked it might be garbage for you and that's totally fine however good enough for submission and good in terms of favorable quality like that movie was good this book was good those are not the same goods if that makes sense to be good enough for submission, it has to meet the requirements for submission guidelines while also being well-made and well-constructed to the best of the writer's ability at the time they completed. Did you do your best? Did you get all the pieces together? Did you try your hardest? Did you work and rework and not just like leave notes for yourself, like put something in here when I think about it? Did you really like 
do all the things you're supposed to do? Did you always do them to the best of your ability? Granted that if we were to come back in six months after you wrote every weekend for six months, maybe the writing would be improved, but you've reached a point where you're not going to do that, which is fine. Good enough means it meets requirements and that there is a level of writer confidence packaged in with this thing. I feel good about this book. I did the best I could. I'm ready to see what happens when it goes forward. That is separate from the judgment label of this thing was good and therefore we will publish it or pay for it or watch it or stream it or whatever it. Those are different goods, even though we use the same word twice because English can be weird like that. But how you can tell it's good enough, part of that's going to come from the construction. Did I do my best? Do I tick all the boxes? Do I have all my scenes? Do I have a plot? Can I point to my arc? Can I point to the themes? Do I have this, 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 and this done? But part of that is also a level of writer confidence, which doesn't so much have a checklist as much as it has a gut feeling. And for a lot of writers, that gut feeling is really hard to come by because for any number of reasons, people can be averse to developing that level of confidence because whether through social pressure, trauma, personal individuation, or whatever, they swear that the minute that confidence shows up, it's extreme. It's got to, I'm, I'm trying not to be arrogant. I'm trying not to boast or brag. No, you're allowed to like your work. You should be the big cheerleader for your work. You're the one who did the work. Be proud of the thing you made. It's not wrong. It's not a crime. It's not indicative of, you know, you're a terrible person because you worked hard and you like it. Like, it's, it's okay to, to like your work. In fact, that confidence and that, that, that comfort, comfortableness, I was going to say comfortability, but I can't think of the word. The, the comfort you have with your work is part of what allows other people to feel at ease when you produce it, when you read it, when you hand it out. Because if you hand it out nervously, full of trepidation, hands and knees shaking, handing this over, oh, please, oh, please, like it. That attitude carries over, especially if you're doing it in person, because now they're going to be, they're biasing themselves in some way, shape, or form. Because now they're not going to, they're either going to want to, you know, not hurt your feelings. Okay, don't worry. I'll, I'll tell you it's good. It's okay. Which may or may not be their honest reaction. Or maybe they're a bunch of dicks. And they're going to look at this and go, oh my God, they're really nervous. Oh, I'm going to slam them. Who knows? You, the writer, should, can, must, need to. Have the confidence and certainty that even if it's not perfect, because this is not a question about perfect, because perfect doesn't exist, even though it's not perfect, and even though that, yep, if we spent more time on it and worked twice as hard, we could probably have something different, sure. But for now, you're good with it. It's okay and right and ultimately necessary to reach that point where you're good with it. When you get there and it's, okay, I'm happy with the way this is and I've done all the things I can do and I can point to the things I've written. When you can do all that, send it out. Publish it, query it, make a billboard, act it out, film it, whatever it is, go move forward with the project. That's how you know when you're ready. But it's up to you to get there. All I can do, all any coach can do is lead that horse to the water, but it is still up to that horse to grab a straw and start drinking. Great question. Are there questions from anybody in chat? I'm looking at this thing. 
Like, is everybody on YouTube tonight and there's barely anybody on Twitch? I, it doesn't individuate it anymore. Figuring out if I'm done is something I struggle so hard with. Oh, we're going to talk about this for a hot minute. Where's my terrible tea? Okay, here's how you know when something's done. Just, you know, put simply. It's done when you've completed all this, the in-story tasks. Here's my plot. I've developed it. It's had a climax. It is resolved. The plot's done. Here's the character arc. The character has been established. The character has been challenged. The character has accomplished stuff. The character is done. You couldn't find the stream on Twitch? Well, shit, Sam. I think that's more my fault for not putting the link on there. Usually, well, it's nice to have you on YouTube all the same. Thanks for being here. Um, I lost my train of thought. We're going back to character arcs. If When you can identify the components of a, of a character arc, start, establish, develop, challenge, resol conflict, resolution, and when you can do that for plot, and when you can point to different scenes, and you've told the entire story, when there's no more story to tell... It's done. Now, I don't think you struggle with that part because that's the easy part of being done. The hard part about being done is the idea as to whether or not you're ready to let it go, which can be anything from a, a race towards perfectionism, which we just talked about, or a general sense of insecurity about whether you have done your best with this particular thing, which can be resolved with a couple different things, including good feedback, that is clear and supportive and tells you, you know, if there is more to do or if it is clear or if it's fine. And uh, you believing it. That's a huge component we don't spend enough time talking about because we can get feedback all damn day. We can talk to a million different people who are like, oh, I love this thing. It's so rad. This is cool. Dig it. But if you look at it and go, yeah, uh -huh. they can, 55 people just told me it's great. But for some reason, you can't t internalize that and move forward for whatever reason you'll never be done because you won't let yourself be done because it's scary and it's okay to be scared. I'm scared all the damn time now. Still got to do stuff. And I don't think it's ever done perfect or well, but it's done. Sometimes that's just how it has to be. One of the things that jams up writers more than anything else is having an expectation about how it's supposed to look, whether it's got to be published a certain way or it's got to be like this long or this size with this many bells and whistles and this, that, and the other. There's some like template we're supposed to fit, right? And if we don't, if we're not perfectly 100% in alignment and congruence with this fabricated idea that we set up ages before we were, we, we were this far along, but all of a sudden, if we can't match that, then, then we're sunk. Most of the time, those expectations are unrealistic, and they don't account for either the hard work you've done in the thing you're doing. Like, it didn't account for the fact that, oh, shit, I need to add this plot, or I need to fix this climax. But it also doesn't account for, you know, all the stuff that happened outside of the book while you were writing. Like, oh, I don't know, somebody dies, or somebody gets married, or you have a child, or you change jobs, or you uh, get a cat, or you just have four bad days at work, or you get sick, or 
I don't know, you you change software or you lose your password or whatever. It doesn't account for all the non-writing stuff that happens that impacts your writing either by time or action. All that stuff is nebulous and abstract compared to the completionist task of, did I put all the words on the page? And too often writers tangle the two together in this weird quantum bullshit entanglement-y way. The amount of words on the page do not represent how hard it was to put the words on the page. And the more you tangle that up, the longer you're going to tell yourself it's not done. It is okay to move forward with a thing and it's not like super mega hyper polished because chances are for a lot of writers, the next step is just another draft or get an editor or hire somebody or get some advice or get some feedback. When the next step is I'm going to send this out the door, we want to interrupt that step with I'm going to make sure some other human being interacts with this thing in some kind of capacity that will make a difference as opposed to just I'm going to chuck this out the door and whatever happens and whatever the way the wind blows, that's what we're going to do. We want to make sure we bring other people into these processes. We want to make sure other people get involved, not because, you know, we're hot garbage and these other people will save us, but because the input from other people allow us to exceed our limitations by ourselves because these other people can give us aid we didn't know we needed. So if you're struggling with, is something done, the, the two things you need to ask yourself are, have I done the best I can as far as I am, whatever it is, whether it's one page done, one book done, one draft done, whatever. Have I done my best? And two, who or what can I talk to for feedback to help me get to the next steps, whatever I think they might be, even if, and if you don't know them, who can I talk to to tell me what the next steps are? Bring in somebody else. It makes a huge difference. Chances are you're not as far from the goal as you think. But that's just me. What do I know? I'm a guy with ugh, tea and, and a lot of insecurity. Hi, Troy. It's good to be here. So, other questions? I'm, I'm killing this one cup of tea, so hang on a second. I like the other stuff better, but I, I got to finish this. How much of a genre should you read? How much of a genre should you read before attempting a story in that genre to learn tropes, etc.? I don't know if you're going to believe this, Ross, but there's no magic number. Um, I'm going to tell you, read two things in a genre. And hopefully they're not two books in the same series, but read two things in a genre to at least get a, get a trope or two in place. So it's at least a way to start because there are so many tropes in damn near any genre that you could easily lose yourself to all the reading before you turn around and remember, oh, right, I did all this so I could write. Just start somewhere small, ground yourself with a few tropes, with a few habits, with a few construction quirk kind of things and, and go from there. I don't think, I used to, there was a time in my life when I was a, a, just a real asshole uh, that you had to be like elbow deep in a genre before you moved on. And really all that was was my insecurity being broadcast out on other people because I was really afraid to like do shit. So I would say to myself and then tell others, hey, before you get started, learn as much as you can. 
Now that sounds great, and it can in some ways be helpful and useful because you'll learn more stuff. But ultimately, there's a tipping point that we really all fail to realize that in in learning more stuff, um, you're really hiding from the the chance to try it because that learning becomes a shield. I can't go yet. I'm still learning. I'm not done yet. I, I still there's still more. There's always going to be more. These genres predate you. So at some point you just have to, like we just talked about with good enough. Sometimes you just got to say, I've hit a limit. I've, I've, I, while yes, I could read 10 more books while yes, I could Google five more things while yes, I could read more bullshit social media and swear the hashtag writing community is good enough. Or I could, I could just try. So how much of a genre? A bit. Do I have a definitive list of authors I recommend reading to become better at writing posted somewhere? Huh? No? Um, you're not going to believe this. No one's asked me that before. It never has occurred to me prior to this moment. Where's my notepad? Where's my notepad? Hang on. It it just it just it just hadn't it's not a thing. Thursday, that's tomorrow, right? Thursday to do list. List of authors for That's fine because all I have to do tomorrow is finish a Patreon recording. So I have like oodles of time. So for writing improvement. I'm going to stick. All right. I'm going to tell you right now, that's going to go up on the blog post. That's going to go up on medium because, um, it's going to go long because I have, I have many thoughts. I'm not going to break it down by genre. Well, maybe I'll break it down by genre. It depends on how long it goes, but yes, I will put together a list of, uh, recommended authors and readings would also love some, uh, some how to books. Yeah. Um, they're going to end up being older books because after a while I stopped tracking down new how-to books. Um, mainly because I, I, I filled a book, I filled my last bookcase and I don't have the space to build a new one and I don't have the money to purchase a new bookcase. So I just sort of stopped collecting physical books. So I'll throw some how-tos on there. They're going to be older. You might have to dig around like, you know, used spaces and Amazon and all that shit. Um, I might. If I can't do affiliate links on medium, because I don't quite know what their rules are, it might go out as a free bonus uh, sub stack, which by the way, if you're, if you're looking for sub stack, and you're, you're really like trying to get to that, like, I want to get better at writing in a businessy kind of way. And I want to be like a career writer. Uh, it's johnhelpsyourwritebetter.substack.com. It's the writer's secret weapon. It comes out on Thursdays. Um, I will probably do it there because that way I know I, I can, I know I can affiliate link some of the older books that might be out of print or might be like $2 plus a million dollars shipping because Amazon's a monster. But yeah, I will put together a list and uh, I probably substack uh, more so than medium and I will make sure it goes out 
I will uh, include a link to it in the coming Monday newsletter, and I will put it on the Discord as well. I'm going to write that down before I forget. Are there any other questions while I'm writing this down? Put on newsletter and Discord. You're welcome. Thank you for suggesting it. It 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 wasn't a thing before now. So now I'm gonna think about it tonight and we'll start on it tomorrow. That's awesome. Thank you. Shall we move on? Question seven. Oh boy, howdy. Prepare for drama. Where's the spice? Question seven. What is the romanticy debate? Yep, it's in quotes. Hang on. There's a question before we get into romanticy. Staying on genre, is there a genre you'd wish would make a comeback? Yes, there are actually a few. Um, I would really like uh, female Western to come back, like dramatically so. I'd also like to see um, really any of the um, what are called uh, NSM detective stories, which are non-standard male so that's female protag, LGBTQ+, uh, queer, gender-flipped, gender-fluid. Uh, any detective story without a white dude in it would be awesome. Like, like here, like big triple air horns level awesome. Because um, it's like there's a, there's a ton of white dude detectives in public domain right now. And I'd like to see not that around like could we do more than that please that's what i'd like to see could we bring back the non-standard male genres please because the term non-standard male is gross as hell can we can we just yeet that towards like mercury and go on about our day if we're looking for just a single genre you know what see what genre i would really like to have it come back uh, i was just talking to somebody about this this morning i would love to see sports stories make a comeback like, um, in particularly in prose, sports stories are kind of relegated to like YA, middle grade reader, the younger set, which is fine. That's great. But I would love to see something in a more adult vein. It could be comedic. It could be dramatic. It could be fantastic, whatever. But I want to see a sports genre come back. Why not? It could be, make it, you know, historical nonfiction, make it historical fiction. Give me, give me something, bring the sports story back. But also let's, let's, uh, let's do the non-standard male presentations in Westerns and detective stories, please. Great question. But now we're over here with romanticy. What is the romanticy? How many more times can I say that? What is the romanticy debate? And what do I need to know about it? Okay. I had to look this up because I didn't know what this was. And there's a good chance I'm still going to get this wrong because nobody can really, really agree on what the debate is. So I'm going to present you three different options for what this debate is and fill you in on them. And if it turns out that the actual debate is some fourth thing I know nothing about, well, hey, at least we tried. All right. Romanticy number one is the debate that in romantic fantasy... So that's a fantasy story with a romantic kind of frame or context. 
the romanticy debate is predicated on the idea that female main character should not hook up with a non-human male love interest. I can't, you know, hump this guy. He's a water buffalo. That kind of thing. Because it, and I'm serious here, it verges into that whole zoophilia, people having sex with animals thing. I know. You just rolled your eyes. I did too. It's stupid. I'm still telling you that's a thing. So, romantic, romantic, romanticy. One of the debates is based on the fact that we can't bring this kind of character with that kind of character because, ew, icky cooties. That's one. Two, uh, romanticy is also a matter of balance. So, in a romance fantasy, so a girl can't love a minotaur? Nope. Girls should not love a minotaur, at least according to the one debate. In the second flavor of debate, the romance fantasy or the fantasy romance, I guess they couldn't figure out a way to portmanteau it the other way around. It's the idea that how romantic can it be if we have so many fantasy elements? Like two dwarves can't fall in love. Um, oh, that's an excellent question about werewolves have been a thing for centuries. Yes, werewolf stories have existed since about, oh God, BC. Uh, and shifter romances are huge. Yes, but shifter romances and werewolves don't count as romances. They count as horror. Ask me why. Ask me why werewolves and shifter romance don't count as true, I'm making air quotes, true romance. You're going to roll your eyes. I know you're going to roll your eyes. It's because in the 1950s, werewolves were in horror movies. Ooh. Yep, that's the whole stupid reason. Werewolves, mummies, zombies, paranormal romance is classified almost as horror in some cases. It's dumb. I know. They're not part of the fantasy romance argument. The the romanticy argument, at least in flavor number two, is that your fantasy elements detract from your romance elements. Uh, I, I, don't, I got nothing. I got nothing on this one. I know zip about it. And paranormal is considered horror adjacent because it's spooky and because it's outside the norm of human, human-like context. That's, those are your first two. Here's your third flavor of the romanticy debate. This one's real broad. It's not a real genre least according to the third flavor of debate. I don't know why it's not a real genre. I'm pretty sure it's a real genre because it contains all the genre elements or a, a smattering of genre elements of both fantasy stories and romance stories to some degree. So it seems pretty real to me, but there are a, a very, very vocal amount of people on, you know, the always correct, never a problem social media who will tell you that romanticy and romantic fantasy are like <clears throat> not a real thing or contributing to rape culture or they're like really uncomfortable, like, like kink things. <coughs> and somebody's got their, you know, pearls clutched and their panties in a knot about it. So it's not a real genre cause they don't like it. That kind of shit. Um, beyond that, I think all of those arguments are really weak. If you're writing fantasy 
and you want to have romance in your fantasy, go for it. If you're writing a romance and you want to set it in fantastic terms, please do. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to debate here. If you're writing a romance that has fantasy in it, great. Write a romance, put some fantasy in it. If you're writing a fantasy that has some romance in it, delightful. Go for it. Chop it up, put it together, however you like. All right? There's nothing automatically bad here. We're not talking about tropes that get you unpublished because those are obvious. We're just talking about, is it okay if I write this thing? Yes, it's totally okay if you write this thing. Oh, what a frustrating question. I'm so glad I spent, you know, time looking at this stuff. But yes, it at least gave me a chance to talk about the three different flavors. of. I didn't know about any of this, but now it makes me want to write a fantasy romance about a hot gay werewolf. Yes, please. Please write a hot gay werewolf romance. Please. Um, gay werewolf is generally not framed in romance, so it would be great. Uh, usually gay werewolf, because werewolfism in the gay community is usually an AIDS metaphor because it's a disease that is spread through interaction, and it's often done at night in secret in the dark, much like vampirism. Really, any of the supernatural horror um, spreading things are sexual diseases, social diseases, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, werewolfism was always gay surrogacy, more so than vampirism, which was just about um, preying on like heterosexuality. It wasn't until you get into like the 60s and like the 1960s and 70s where you get like gay vampires. Mainly because it was always women, let's eat them or something because white dudes wrote it. Is Stardust by Neil Gaiman not a real book anymore, according to this logic? Yes, fair enough. Yeah, didn't know that about werewolves. Um, did I do a werewolf one on Patreon? I know in one of the many things where I talked about vampires, I also threw werewolves in there. It might have been during the, the, the whole batch of Twilight ones where I talked about what werewolves represent. But yes, werewolves, werewolves are frequently used to talk about AIDS. It's discouraging and frustrating, especially because it's always lensed in the older 1980s view of AIDS. Was it Underworld? At some point I talked about it. I will probably stick that on Discord again if I can find it. But yeah, werewolfism is, is usually for AIDS or hepatitis. Um, and vampirism is almost always pregnancy or um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. Or... Um, other hep tuberculosis, hepatitis. It's it's generally not as uh, aggressive uh, a negative view as werewolfism. Yay, history. Question number eight, as I finish off this tea. All right, tea done. What are the necessary elements of dark academia? Okay. If you have no idea what dark academia is, this is pretty straightforward. Um, dark academia refers to, uh, well, if we were, I don't know, older than 25, we would consider dark academia to be Gothic capital G not, you know, dark academia is a great band name. That is true. But dark academia, uh, is the new coat of paint on capital G Gothic. 
So Baroque architecture, Gothic stuff, that kind of thing. You're going to see a lot of uh, heavy, dominant chord classical pieces, a lot of Baroque stuff, a lot of big quilted Rococo shit in there too because we're just going to hodgepodge it all together. Dark Academia is this idea of high education but in a mysterious brooding way where there's thunder and lightning and Brahms and a harpsichord. Um, it's that kind of vibe. The elements for it in terms of dark academia for fiction, it's hard to quantify it in terms of ruffles, top hats, and capes. Kind of capes, yes. Top hats, sure. Ruffles, maybe not so much because ruffles are generally thought to be like white and, and bright and they stand out in contrast against the cape. This is more brooding and heavy and pendulous with the weight of the knowledge of how, how dreary life is. Uh, dark academia is, you know, I'm going to sit here in my tower while it rains and brood about things. And I'm going to, you know, play the harpsichord. Capital G Gothic is Victorian monsters like Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolf, Jekyll and Hyde. Among other things, yes, but capital G Gothic is also Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, um, heavy, the heavier classical music with big orchestras and, you know, heavy chords, major chords that resolve, that kind of thing. It's supposed to suggest this level of education, but also heavy emotional weight. In the fiction, it's almost always a brooding hero or somebody who's plagued with Byronic melancholy. In terms of a YouTube genre, by the way, though, hella popular. If you, if you want to, like, pop off with a good YouTube channel... Dark Academia is a fantastic way of like, let's put together a playlist with a really simple like uh, thumbnail and, and I'll grow a Dark Academia channel. In the same way that like Cottage Core, Clutter Core, Goblin Core are still things circulating, Dark Academia is still out there too. I've always thought of it in terms of like some kids get angry and go into their room, slam the door and put on like Lincoln Park or Dashboard Confessional or Susie and the Banshees and other kids go in their room, slam the door and put on like uh, an or Takata in, you know, E or something. They put on like a really great organ fugue. If you can imagine a classical music powered mad scientist, you're in the ballpark for dark academia. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. So aim for brooding, aim for heaviness and weight in terms of uh, sonics, in terms of architecture, in terms of tone and vibe. Uh, stories tend to be pretty simple in terms of structure. They're just dressed up under all this other story architecture, but it's pretty straightforward and linear in terms of story. You don't really jump through time or anything wild like that. Good question. Question nine. Ooh, I'm writing a newsletter. I'm tweeting. I'm esoteric occultism. Sure, depending on what it is. Um, sure. The early stuff more so than the modern stuff. Yeah, the early stuff. That's fine. I'm writing a newsletter. I'm tweeting. I'm kind of on Facebook. I'm in four different Discord servers. Aren't I spreading myself too thin with all this marketing? Man, okay. We're going to have a little moment here together, you and me. Okay. 
just because you're on four different Discord servers or five or two or nine, just because you're there does not mean you're marketing. Just because you're kind of, what is kind of on Facebook? I'm kind of on Facebook. I'm there to talk to people I went to high school with and make sure my brother doesn't do anything stupid. That's not marketing. I don't talk about work there. I'm embarrassed. My high school bullies on Facebook. I want to tell them what the fuck I'm doing now. It's been 30 years. He might still kick my ass. I'm writing a newsletter. I'm tweeting. I'm all in these places. Just because you're there and you're doing these things does not automatically make it marketing. If you're wondering whether you're spreading yourself too thin, you can only be too thin relative to your level of activity. Because if you're just one of those cats who's hanging out on a Discord server just there... You don't engage. You don't interact. You're just present. You get the notification when they at everyone or something, but you don't, you don't contribute. You don't benefit from it other than just to say, oh, I'm in a writing Discord server. But you're not asking questions. You're not showing up to events. You're not joining voice chat. You're not collaborating and communicating. You're not really doing anything other than just taking up a space. That's not marketing. That's not too thin. That's, that's, too invisible. You're not really there. And you could be writing a newsletter and you could be tweeting, but if you're shit posting memes about like, oh my God, look at this stupid cartoon, or, you know, I'm writing a newsletter, but I'm I'm really just kind of spinning my wheels in terms of what progress I'm making, that's not marketing. Marketing is a targeted attempt to inform other people of what you're doing for a stated purpose that ultimately you will encourage, rather than force, encourage these people to interact with you in a transactional way. I'm making a thing. When it's done, you're going to want it. That's the function of marketing. Yay, capitalism, question mark? But that's the idea. So if you're just sitting there and you're not really gearing in a direction that will ultimately lead to the possible transaction, you're not marketing. You're just present. If you feel like you're spreading yourself too thin while you are also doing, you know, here's this progress, here's this thing, here's that thing, here's this thing. If you really do feel like you're spreading yourself too thin, then do something about it and pull back. One of the things that really bothers me with this, other than my own anxiety that I am not a great marketer, is the idea or the expectation that there's like one true path for marketing that if everybody just does like a little column A and a little column B and then a little column C, all of a sudden it just clicks. And it doesn't do that. I know that there are people, businesses, that sell you on the idea that if you do that, it'll work because that's what they're trying to sell you. But for the vast number of people, since you're all making different things and you're all at different points of progress in the journey of making all those different things, you have to take an equally variable, equally flexible approach in your marketing. The goal isn't to like inform the entire planet's population because, well, a lot of the planet, I don't know if you know this, doesn't speak the same language you do. And a lot of the population of the planet aren't literate because, you know, they're babies. And a lot of the planet's population is disinterested in what you're making. That's not because you're a bad person making bad things. It's because it's not relevant to them. So the idea in marketing isn't to reach the widest number of people possible. 
That's just what somebody's trying to sell you because, yay, capitalism, question mark. What you should be aiming for in marketing is I'm reaching some number of people who will be interested in this work, who I know will exchange money for this thing I'm making, doing, producing, having, whatever. They will give me something, be it time, money, attention, care, respect, love, whatever. They'll give me, it's transactional. If you're not developing and leading towards a transaction of some kind, it is not marketing. Now, that is not to say you can produce and not market. You can just make stuff and put it out into the world. That's totally fine. Independent of like, hey, give me $2 or hey, give me $9.95 or whatever. Totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if we are specifically talking about marketing and you're worried about spreading yourself too thin while you are also simultaneously not doing anything consistently, you're not really marketing, so you're not really spreading yourself too thin. And don't confuse feeling spread too thin with disinterest because they're not the same thing. Because you can be on all these different places doing all, you know, saying you're doing all this stuff and occupying time and taking up space, but because it's not going anywhere, because it's kind of scattered and all over the place, it can feel like you're doing a lot and accomplishing very little because, fun fact, you are doing a lot and accomplishing very little. It's about organization at this level. It's about focus at this level. If you're writing a newsletter and you're tweeting, that's enough. If you're tweeting and kind of on Facebook and both of those things are, are geared outward rather than just like, I'm complaining about something, then that's enough. If you're on some Discord servers and you're interacting and you're you know there and active and using the service and using the material and the space for what it's intended, that can be enough. Doing more as in a greater quantity of things, does not necessarily automatically translate to a better quality of things. I am busy as hell. I am not always doing things that I would qualify as marketing. Sometimes I'm working with people. Sometimes I'm recording stuff for Patreon. Sometimes I'm recording podcasts. Sometimes I'm, you know, making notes, taking things apart, writing this, planning that, scribbling this, teaching myself this thing and that thing. That's not marketing. That's just me doing shit so that I have other things down the road to market. If you feel you're spreading yourself too thin, pull back. But if you're just looking for the permission slip to not do so much, even though you weren't doing so much in the first place, well, then you're lazy. And I have nothing for you here on this one. But chances are, if you're just present and inactive, that's not marketing. You're just taking up space. Why are you there? What are you hoping for? What are you looking for? Because you will get out of all of these interactions what you put in. If you spin your wheels with a newsletter, you will get spinning your wheels back to you as a response from people. If you tweet or are kind of on Facebook and it's not going anywhere, well, that's one of the more things you can expect. And if you're just online and not accomplishing anything, why? I, I'm a member, I am, I'm a frequent guest and a member in several Discord servers where there are dozens, tens, almost 100 people in some cases. They just sit there. They just sit there. Why? 
Just why? I get that they're busy. I get that they have kids and lives and this and that, and they're they're playing this game and they're doing this and they're over here. I, I get that they're busy. But then what are you doing here? Like if our goal, which I thought was a stated goal, if our goal is to accomplish this thing, how's that progress coming? I know it's a joke to say like, how's that book coming that you're writing? But hey, how's your book coming? How's your thing going? Do you need help? What would make your life easier? Would Do you need to do some things? Do you need some help? Or are we just sitting here waiting for like, I don't know, a rainbow, a double rainbow across the sky to illustrate to us some kind of issue? Like, what are we waiting for? What help can you need? Like, it's you're driving this car, so drive. You keep saying you want to get somewhere. You're the one doing the driving. Let's go. That's my answer to you. Are there? More questions from anybody in chat. Looking at this now, I see we've got just an accumulated 50 comments, like 50 things back and forth in chat from all different people. That's the most I've ever had. That is amazing. Thank you so much, everybody. That is, that is fucking great. Because normally I have like 12, 13. 50 is awesome. Love it. Questions, anybody, about anything. Else we will just keep going. We're doing great. I have to remember, there's my post-it note. I used to have a post-it note at the bottom of this monitor saying, remember the delay, because I say a thing and then it's a few seconds and it goes out into the world. So, yeah, there we are. I lost my post-it note. I think it just kind of fell down behind the speaker, um, maybe, or it's on the floor, and the cat got it. But we'll get there, whatever. But if you have questions, fire away anytime. I'm going to keep moving, though. Question 10. On March 1st, I self-published my first book. Congratulations! Yay! Why have my sales really dropped since then? All right, so it's been two weeks since you published your book. All right, <clears throat> this is going to get uncomfortable. And I'm real sorry because I'm not trying to be uncomfortable. Um, I'm just going to tell you how things are. About four to six days after your debut, your sales are going to drop. Sometimes faster than that. But typically four to six days after first date of publish, things fall off. Why? Well, that's because all the people who said they were going to buy the book have bought the book. And this is usually the point four to six days in, sometimes seven to ten days in, where a writer or a publisher or somebody decides to do something to drive up interest. This is where we get into contests. This is where we do interviews. This is where we do some kind of very overt marketing thing in an effort to sort of rekindle interest. Now, here's the wrinkle. Typically, those stunts, because that's actually what they're technically called, those stunts do bring in sales, but not, nece not necessarily to the same degree as those opening debut. Typically for a lot of books, the majority of books, in fact, over 80% of books, they sell best in their opening four to five days. And then everything thereafter is slightly diminished over the course of the lifetime of the book, barring significant 
algorithmic interest. Like off all of a sudden the algorithm for whatever thing, whether we're talking YouTube or Kindle or this, that, or the other picks you up and carries you somewhere, then yeah, that's certainly going to bring in some more eyes and some more interest. But by and large, just, you know, books have a, a hard fall off. So why have your sales dropped? Because that's how book publishing works. And this is true for self-publishing. It's a little bit more apparent in self-publishing because the numbers tend to be smaller, um, especially in opening weekends compared to like mass market publication where you're in hundreds of bookstores or you're on thousands of Kindles all at once. But the numbers fall off over time. And a lot of small to mid-sized publishers really build campaigns and build marketing strategies around the idea that your best sales are your opening week or opening weekend and that you will spend the rest of the book's lifespan trying to chase that high again. And I can tell you as an addict, chasing a high is almost always disappointing. What you can do to prepare and insulate yourself in the pre-publishing period, because I know a lot of the people watching this and listening to this are in the not yet publishing stage, be aware that, yeah, these numbers are going to drop. The little lines and the little metrics are going to go up and down and wobble and, and it's going to feel real bad because you're going to want that number to go up and that line to go up, but it's, it's not. It's out of your control on some level, and I'm sorry, but that's just how that shit is. What you can prepare yourself for is, okay, I'm going to sell real well and then it's going to fall off and I can attempt a stunt. I can attempt to, you know, jump over the shark, Fonzie, or I can, you know, f jump across Snake Canyon with a rocket-powered whatever, or I can eat a whole, you know, bicycle while humming Flight of the Bumblebee. But ultimately, once that fall happens and you're no longer comfortable pressing F5 and manically refreshing everything, that's the time to move forward with the marketing. It's time to go get the next thing. It's time to go get the next, like, okay, I did my podcast. I did the interview. It's time to go either start the next thing or just let this percolate in the back, the, the back burner. Troy here says he self-published his first book in 2018. Delightful. My third book just came out on March 2nd. Competition is much more fierce now than back then. Yes, totally. And Amazon's uh, keyword costs have, you know, skyrocketed because they realize they're the big fish. They realize they're the big thing in town. Um, I'm sorry your sales have fallen off, but the, such is the nature of the monster Amazon wants us to live with. Um, it sucks. It really does because everybody deserves better. When I worked in traditional publishing last, I was absolutely stunned to discover the price for keywords had really just shifted as much as it used to and that the budget I was given to operate some keyword stuff was no like a power of 10 less than I needed it to be and it was ridiculous how like ineffective even my better marketing campaigns came to be because I just there just wasn't the support underneath it so there's a price for keywords. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna pay for some stuff if you wanna if you wanna get in there and really like um, you see it with see with YouTube stuff too. You got banned on my Twitch again. I can't unban you in the middle of a thing, but I will unban you when I'm done. I promise. Um, it's probably for emojis or all caps. I swear I fixed that. I know I did. I logged in and everything, but I'll I'll take care of it, Troy. Don't worry. The 
or it was just a long ass message. I'll fix it. I'll deal with whatever the problem is. Anyway, yes, Ross, there's keyword costs. That's how Amazon makes its money from marketing. Uh, it isn't just eyes and traffic. It was, um, it is very hard to get noticed. Absolutely, Troy. It is hard to get noticed. So when you get noticed to any degree, take it and ride the roller coaster as best you can. But yes, keywords have cost. If you want to get us, if you want to take advantage of certain SEO things over other SEO things, some word choices are better, but the better ones are going to cost you more. It's the difference between saying, and you can see this with YouTube. If you ever put out a YouTube thing and you go to tag your stuff, if you have one of those services that tracks tags and tracks metrics, you can see that when you tag thing like books versus how to write a book, or writing a book versus writing a book quickly because of the, the modifying adverb, not just as an adverb, but as a concept in, in writing, you will see variation in metrics and data because people want things faster. They want things easier. So if I use keywords like that to suggest like this writer's chat, if I throw a keyword in there that suggests speed or ease or whatever, this, that, or the other, then uh, yeah, I, it will possibly, because some of it's out of my control, possibly do better than if I were to do what I used to do, which is just throw some bullshit keywords in there. Like here's a wrestling promo name and here's a hamburger. And here's, you know, like I'll just throw in random words that amuse me. Keywords matter and people make a big deal about the cost and price for them. And then people fall down a deep rabbit hole of like, I have to figure out how to do this. And it's designed to not be figure outable. I'm making a face because I'm, I'm not sure that's the clearest way to say it. It's designed to remain mysterious because if everybody knew how to do it, they wouldn't be able to profit the way they do. And yes, Troy, it is always better uh, in like local book fair, high school reading, like go engage with people. That's a level of non-algorithmic marketing, uh, which I'm going to talk about in one of the future substacks. Uh, non-algorithmic marketing is almost always going to be more successful in the long term because there's no algorithm for it. It's not designed to feed the capitalistic super monster. It's just designed to move books the way books used to be. So your sales dropped back to my question. Number 10, the sales dropped because that's what sales do. Good question. Good job publishing your book on March 1st or March 2nd or whenever it is you publish your book. Good job. Question 11. How do I start adapting a work in the public domain for a modern audience? Okay, so let's pick a fairly modern-ish public domain, and then we'll pick one that's very much out of the modern conception, and we'll talk about how to adapt them. Because the, adapt, the adapting process, or the process of adaptation, doesn't really change. It's just a matter of how much adapting you do. So let's say, um, let's pick one. Nick and Nora Charles are in the public domain because most of Dashiell Hammett's stuff is in the public domain. So feel free to grab your continental op and go to town. But Nick and Nora Charles are in your public domain and they have been for, I think, a year or two now. So how would we adopt them or how would we adapt them, sorry, adapt them for a modern audience? Well, what's missing? So here's what you do. You take your subject whatever it is, and you think about its relative distance from the modern setting. And what modern elements can we bring in 
to a Nick and Nora Charles story, a thin man story that would help give it a more modern framework than what we had. Now, Nick and Nora Charles, the whole movie series, including the later ones that aren't as good as the early ones, there's a lot of stuff that's old-fashioned comparatively. There's some corded phones. There's a lot of shit on trains. There's a lot of just general consumerism and a lot of, you know, sort of uh, convenient of the time racism, sexism, and a general sense of this is the 20s and 30s. We're just kind of rolling with it. How else can we modernize it? Well, we can strip away the elements of its original era that don't service. So out go the sexism and out goes the racism but we can modernize it in a way that still gives us the potential to have the material, because we're going to talk about material benefit of the original piece. So instead of being on trains and everything, we can put them in cars. They're in cars in later ones, but they took a hell of a lot of trains and spent a lot of time on trains in the movies. So out that goes, put them on planes, put them on trains, that kind of thing. Maybe we're telling a future version where they teleport. Who the fuck knows? But we look for elements where we can bring the modern to its past. And then we kind of flip it around and go the other way. And we look for the material from the past that we want to preserve. So when we think Nick and Nora Charles, we think banter. We think talking. And we think alcoholism. And we think about the collision of all those things, talking, people talking, solving the mystery, knowing a lot of people, pulling it all together, and doing it at a high rate of chatty, chatty speed. We can preserve those elements, all of those elements. We just need to make them, you know, not from the 1920s and 30s. We want to bring them up a century into the 2020s and the 2030s. Wow, I feel really old saying that out loud, but there we are all the same. How do we do that? Take the framework of, of the thin man and look for the stuff to immediately modernize and take, the, take a look at the original thin man and not so much how can we duplicate the same strategy, like we're going to take the same conversation and just port it up 100 years, but what's the style of that construction? Where are we punctuating sentences? How many lines of dialogue are there? Hint, a lot. Who's doing more talking, Nick or Nora? Is it always Nick to Nora or does Nora initiate? How are the scenes broken down? We take apart the text using the tools we know for construction and deconstruction and narrative design, and then we build a new blueprint using the pieces from the past. This, by the way, is used to be called pastiche formula, P-A-S-T-I-C-H-E, pastiche, which is homage, which is the way we... This is how somebody like Lindsay Fay produces a ton of Sherlock Holmes mysteries that aren't Sherlock Holmes canon, but they're Sherlock Holmes mysteries. This is how we get uh, Robert, was it Robert Goldsboro or William Goldsboro doing more Nero Wolf corpus. We, we take material and we bring it forward while retaining some elements that help keep the thing identifiable. Now, that's easy when we're dealing with a fairly modern or a 20th century modern structure. We don't, we just bring in some trains, we give somebody an iPhone, we move on with our day. It's harder to do when we go back to something that's a bit more fantastic and not so modern, like Conan. How could we do Conan? How could we do Barsoom? How could we do John Carter of Mars? Well, we're going to have to deal with Robert Howard being kind of a gross dude. So 
what can we what can we change right away while preserving as much as we'd like to? Um, could we do Red Sonia? Could we gender flip Conan? Could we take the idea of Conan and not make him a barbarian in the fantastic fantasy sense and make him a barbarian in terms of he's an outlier from social convention? How could we reinterpret the things as we, as we have come to define them to facilitate story going forward? That's the question to ask the farther away from modernity you get in your adaptation. How can I take this thing so that it feels like it used to, but bring it into a way so that it presents in a way more modern? That's the challenge. It's not easy, which is why a lot of people, when they start adapting stuff for public domain, pick more modern stuff as a framework. They start in the Victorian and the Georgian era and they work their way forward because cities and cars and trains and planes and buses and this, that, and the other are easier to adapt than trying to grapple with the idea of like, how do I deal with this German thing from the 14th century? You pick and choose your battles. Don't die on unnecessary hills. But you start by bringing either the modern stuff backwards or the past forward to retain vibe and feel beyond just structure. Can you confront negative attitudes and adaptation? Absolutely. As in Lovecraft's racism. Sure you can. Acknowledge the stories have merit, but also break down problematic things. Absolutely you can. I'm going to even go one step further and say if you're going that route, you have a responsibility to do so. I'm going to say that you should confront that stuff. Now, it might just be a simple confrontation like, you know, putting a disclaimer in the front of the book. Hey, I'm not a racist. Fuck off. Or the original story this is based on is, is you know, full of sexism or something. But it... it could also be more than that by having, I don't know, a character who directly flies in the face of the pre-existing racism. There are loads of ways to do it, but I believe if you're going to go this way and adapt something that is previously mired and layered in negative attitudes, you have a responsibility to do something about it. Don't per Certainly don't perpetuate it. That's for damn sure. But I think you absolutely have a responsibility to challenge it, subvert it, and do something about it. Otherwise, it's a missed opportunity. Otherwise, it's a chance to not only put your own stamp on a thing, but also address a pre-existing problem and show your awareness of it. Because if you just let it slide, if you're just like, ah, I know it's racist, but I don't, want, I don't want to put that shit in my book. That's too much effort. You're basically saying, I'm cool with the racism, which is never a good look for any author. So instead, do something about it. It's only to your benefit. Sensitivity readers are your friends. But yes, I believe you have a responsibility to confront that negative stuff. Especially in adaptation because you're more free and able to do so. You're not just, you know, Xeroxing and, and duplicating stuff. You're doing something about it. So I think, yes, I think you have a responsibility to do so. On to question 12. How do I develop my mystery better so that my antagonist is better disguised even if the butler really did do it? So hiding your antagonist or increasing your mystery, it's roughly the same idea, is done in a couple different ways, sometimes well, sometimes not. 
One of the ways people do it that sometimes works and sometimes not is they add more clues. This can be a problem because in adding more clues, people decide, oh, I'm going to add some more red herrings. And that just slows everything down because now instead of juggling five pieces of information, now I've got like 15. And that doesn't make the mystery better. That makes the mystery more cluttered. Clutter is not necessarily your friend, but also the inverse is not helpful either. Hyperminimalism is not better. There's Don't sit on the extremes. If you're going to add more clues and more steps in your clue economy and lengthen the chain of your mystery, make sure you're doing it for more reasons than just to create alternates for who could have done it. Create more plausible steps. Create more plausible things. Don't just do it because i got to create a cul-de-sac to slow you down in Chapter 8. That's one way that people do it, though. Another way people do it is to increase the stakes. Because if it's a bigger deal and we have some kind of urgency driving it, then we're going to be distracted somewhat as to who did it because, oh my God, we only have, you know, 12 hours until the cops get here from the other island or we only have, you know, before the end of the weekend, we have to figure out who the killer is or something. We, we use stakes and the highlighting of a boundary to create a level of tension so that the mystery doesn't necessarily need to be more complicated, but we have greater urgency to resolve it. That's a second way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's a third way. When you're laying out the mystery from more of just a general plotting stage, make sure that if you know the butler really did do it, do not give the reason for a butler to do the whatever they did. It doesn't have to be a simple reason that's obvious. Make the reason, make the, the commission of the act more intense and personal. It, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with I killed him because I needed the money. Sure, but can we make a better case for why he needed the money? Can we draw out and elongate the, the development of the idea that we're doing this for money? Because if it can just get resolved with I killed him because I needed the money and we hand wave it away, we have not better disguised who did it. If you make clear the connective tissue between here's who could have done it and here's why they could have done it. If you have failed to really um, emulsify that and improve that, then of course it's going to be obvious. Now, while we're talking about obviousness, you've got to remember that particularly in mystery, readers are hella savvy. They have seen some shit. They have read generally a lot there's always going to be some segment of the readership who's going to know the butler did it no matter how well you disguise it. And that's not a sign that your book sucks. That's not a sign that you screwed up. That's just a sign that those people are very well read and they have good instincts for this sort of thing. That's not your fault. Okay? However, if we're looking to develop the mystery better, take all the pieces and make them more substantial is another method to have another character falsely confess and have, and then give the detective a chance to figure that out. Yes. False confession or increasing the possibility of suspects or increasing the number of hoops to jump through in the process of confirming the results of the mystery is another way to do that. It can backfire because depending on the, what the confession is, 
when it's done, how well it's done, how big it is, and what happens immediately thereafter. You can slam the brakes on your story momentum. Let's say all of us are sitting in a room and one of us ate the last cookie. We're trying to figure out who ate the last cookie. And we know one of us is sitting here and one of us, you know, jumps on the cookie grenade and says, I ate the last cookie. And then if if the detective has to sit here and figure out whether or not you did, and there's no obvious signs like you've got crumbs all over you, but there's no obvious signs, then we are we haven't changed the mystery, but we've added additional hoops to take longer to get there. It doesn't directly disguise the mystery, but it does add more to it. Don't confuse the two. They're not synonymous. The backfire there is, let's say we rule out Troy. He confessed, but he didn't eat the cookie, right? If we rule that out, we have to restart the engine of the mystery. We have to kind of, okay, so Troy didn't do it. We're left with some kind of, some amount of like, well, who ate the cookie? Nope, that's the wrong button, John. I ruined my own joke, damn it. Ah, nuts. So I killed that joke. I'm going to try that again. So if we find out that Troy, you know, didn't eat the cookie, but who did? That's better. Always, always go for a second time. Repeating the joke makes it funnier. We have to restart, which means we have to pick back up, which means we have to make sure that the unknownness after Troy's confession and after we rule it out is still substantial for our story. Because if we just cross Troy off the list and it comes to a screeching halt and we hit that low moment of, well, I thought Troy did it, but he didn't do it. What am I going to do? We're just dragging it out at that point rather than building on it. There are a couple different ways to do it. One is not necessarily better than the other just by virtue of what it is. It depends on how you write it. So if your butler really did it, keep the reason clear in your head as the creator of the story, and then you can either cloak or complicate or extend the reason, and it'll seem less obvious that the butler really did do it. It also comes down to how you write it, your word choice, your construction, your pacing, how you deploy the story. Excellent question. Let's wrap this sucker up with the 13th question, which at one point was going to be question number one, but I shuffled it around. Why do I need to write a synopsis and a query letter if I also have to have uh, the first 10 pages of my manuscript pasted into the body of an email? Oh boy. Okay. I'm going to tell you another terrible publishing secret. Ready? Ready? Some of these rules, some of these things you have to do in traditional publishing are done just to see if you'll do them. There's no actual professional, like, benefit. It's just to see if you'll jump through the hoop. Now, we won't frame it like that in the professional side of things. We won't just talk about it as like, let's see if we can make the monkey dance. We're going to frame it as we want to see if the writer can follow instructions, which is a really, really like childish patronizing way. Like we just, like the industry assumes writers won't follow directions. Like they're just first graders running around at recess. It's a really shitty way of understanding how human beings are to one another. But part of the reason why we need a synopsis and a query letter and the first 10 pages is because mainly they want to see if you'll follow directions. 
you'd be surprised the number of people who don't. They'll say, no, my shit's so good, I don't need to do that. But following directions is important to them because they're gatekeepers, and gatekeepers live and die by the complexity of their directions and their necessity to having them followed because they're grotesquely insecure and they don't have anything fucking else to do. So they want to make sure everybody abides by all the rules. They're hall monitors. Please don't run so fast. Please don't you know dawdle by your locker. Please don't cause a scene. Just everybody's in charge. You know, everybody do what I say because I have momentary authority. Yawn, stretch, please shove them in a locker, give them a swirly, take their chocolate milk away. It's just to see if you follow directions. Because honestly, if you paste everything into the body of one super long email, okay, do you know the important part? The 10 pages. The query letter, maybe. But if it's all in one body, they'll skim down. They'll start looking at the text. Because you're willing to forgive a mediocre query letter that kind of sounds all right. You go straight for the manuscript pages to see if, oh, well, the writing's better, but the query just sucked. The synopsis, the synopsis is there because not everybody's going to read the 10 pages and you need to pass something out to the group of people making the submission decisions who aren't going to read those 10 pages. That's all. That's all. Honestly, after the 10 pages and if they say they want more, that's when your synopsis circulates. Some people get the stack of pages, whether it's a half submission or a full, a full submission. And then other people get the synopsis and then everybody gets together. Once everything's established as everybody who read something has a rough idea of what this book is. And then it doesn't matter if it was all pasted into the body of one email or attached because, oh my God, viruses can be attached. That is literally the reason why some of these people want it pasted all in the body of one email because the other way people accept submissions is by WordPress plugin because they're lazy, because they're lazy and nobody wants to do their job at their job because they're dinosaurs. Yeah, go ahead. Quote me on that. Feel free. But the point here is you need to do it because they want to see if you'll follow directions and get a pat on the head. And then you can sit crisscross applesauce on your carpet square and enjoy story time. But there is no functional there is no professional reason why you need to do those things. Your synopsis and your query, more than enough. And then ask for pages. Or query and pages. Or synopsis and pages. All three, overkill. It's just to see if you'll do it. Think of it as hazing. They also don't have anything else better to do. Because nobody wants to do their job at their job. What a wonderful question. Loved it so much. Are there any additional questions before we get out of here? Anybody, anything? Shall we go? Yeah, let's go to that sweet, sweet outro. I've missed it so much. I want to thank each and every single person who was here. This really means the world to me. This is, oh, oh my God, there's a question. Oh my God, stop the outro. Since you brought up public domain earlier, do you have a favorite public domain work or author you wish would get a modern adaptation? Uh, 
Yeah, I want to see Metropolis. Um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis get a better version. I'm excited about the the upcoming movie version just to see what it's like. Um, beyond that, not really. Um, I'm unfortunately not as deeply up on my public domain releases as possible. I'd like to see more Winnie the Pooh. Uh, not the murderous Winnie the Pooh version, but like just more Winnie the Pooh. I think there's more space there in the kids stuff to do that. But I, I don't like a three musketeers would be good or uh count of Monte Cristo, like a classic classic Robinson Crusoe, you know, strand Robinson Crusoe during the pandemic, that kind of thing. Not so much with a virus, but just lock them alone in a, in a building and see what happens. I'd, I'd be interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just, that's just me thinking. All right. I'm going back to the outro now. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you for all your questions. Thanks for all the comments. Thanks for all the following and subscribing and liking and this, that, and the other. If you enjoyed this, if this was good for you, if you dug this, if you're down for more, please, sincerely, go check out patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better. Two bucks a month. Uh, This week, by the way, I'm doing Wakanda Forever. And then next week, we're doing The Woman King. We're covering some big, heavy stories with some big, heavy stuff. And it's going to be really good. If you want more writer advice, more writer stuff, go check out Substack. That's johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com. That's the writer's secret weapon. It'll be out tomorrow. Um, super helpful information designed to help you write better without realizing you're writing better. Uh, for more streams and everything, go check out the YouTube channel. Uh, wherever you're watching this, that's youtube.com slash Adamus. The next time I'm here in your ears doing all the things and I want to do something on the 20th I want to stream something Monday night I want to do a Monday night stream I don't know what yet please uh, somewhere either on Twitter or elsewhere leave me suggestions what do you want to talk about I want to do something Um, put together a list and I'll, I'll pick the bestest one and we'll talk about it on Monday night the 20th the next time I'm here to do another chat will be Wednesday the 22nd, the day after my brother's birthday. Um, the first full day of spring, apparently. So, uh, yeah, I'll be right back here on the 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern for more questions, for more stuff. And, oh, my God, I can't goddamn wait. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I love all of you. All power to all people. Take good care of yourselves. Know that I love you. I've missed you. This is great to be here. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See you.